0: following messages is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. So good to see you out there in the pews. And for those of you joining us online, we welcome you as well. We know you enjoyed some prelude music there. And uh, courtesy of Christy and Macy Collins, we thank them for that ministry of preparing some music for us. Let's turn our Bibles, please, to John's Gospel in chapter 19. John's Gospel in chapter 19. I have selected to begin our reading this morning at John 19, verse number 17. This takes us back to Good Friday, just by a, back a little bit, and then we will see also about the resurrection. John 19, verse 17. And he, speaking of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which in, is called in Hebrew... Golgotha, verse 18 of chapter 19, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. That verb crucified is a very sad verb. It's a very meaningful verb in English. It's the Greek word staurao, And it's interesting that they had a verb for that, which carries over into our English. We would never have it if it didn't exist in Roman times. That verb means they affixed his body to a cross by means of nails through the wrists and nails through the feet. That word encapsulates the whole thing. On an instrument like the one that's up behind me on the wall, a wooden cross. And when, he, when it says he was bearing his cross, it's likely that he was bearing just the cross beam, the horizontal beam that we see here. Uh, that beam, by the way, is is quite heavy, but it's not. That's not a solid beam of oak. The beam that Jesus would have carried would have been a solid piece of wood, and very heavy for him. And he was actually unable to do so physically because he was so beaten and so battered that they had to have an assistant come to help him. So they took somebody out of the crowd and pressed him into service to carry the cross beam for the Lord Jesus. And they crucified him. They affixed him to that cross and hung him up there on the upright. And verse 19 says, Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, so the three languages that were the trade, uh, common languages of the time. Verse 21, therefore, the chief priests and the Jews, these are the enemies of Jesus, said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I'm king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, that is affixed him to that cross to kill him, they took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, mothers out there, imagine, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that is John, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Here is the responsibility of the eldest son, to make sure that mom is cared for. And he did so as he hung upon a cross, barely able to breathe, being crucified, being executed. Verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. for That Sabbath was a high day. That was a very holy day to the Jews. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. That was a mechanism by which they would hasten the death of those that were hanging on the cross, preventing them from being able to breathe and thus hasten their expiration to within just a few moments. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds, That is a lot of spices, of myrrh and aloes, to anoint a body of a person who has just died. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby." That's Friday, skip Saturday and then into Sunday morning, verse one of chapter 20. By the way, this text was written, for those of you that might be wondering, about 1960 years ago, more or less, okay? This is an ancient document uh, written by an eyewitness to all of these events. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Again, that's John, the author of this document. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchiefs that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, again John, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. What did he believe? Verse 9, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. That's what they saw and began to believe. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, "'Because they have taken away my Lord, "'and I do not know where they have laid him.' Now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, "'Woman, why are you weeping? "'Whom are you seeking?' She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, "'Sir, if you have carried him away, "'tell me where you have laid him, "'and I will take him away.' Jesus said to her, "'Mary.' She turned and said to him, "'Rabboni.' which is translated teacher. She said, Jesus rather, said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. We're going to stop the reading there because the text goes on to talk about the same day at evening, which would be this evening this late afternoon. So we won't read that for now, but you can pick that up some other time. May God bless that reading of his holy word. It's now my privilege to share with you the word of God this morning. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you haven't been listening or or visiting with us before today, uh, you will maybe wonder why I'm doing what I'm doing here. Our practice as a church, we're convinced is what God would have us to do, and that is to teach through or preach through uh, sections of the Bible in order from beginning to end, and we selected, I I selected uh, last year to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and to preach through the entire book of 1 Corinthians, and as it turns out, God would have us today at this section of scripture in chapter 15. This is actually part eight of our series on the doctrine of the Christian resurrection, and we are in verses 50 to 58, but I'm not going to uh, limit myself to that. I'd like to do some review of the prior sections of the chapter because it's so critical for us, and I suspect that uh, folks tuning in today may be somewhat different than our normal crowd because it's Easter, and so if you are here for the first time, or uh, perhaps have just started coming, we welcome you. We thank you for coming and hope that this will be uh, an inc- helpful and educational for you. I've become convinced over the years that there is a real dearth of Bible knowledge in our land and in our world. That uh, has been called by some Bible poverty. Bible poverty. Uh, most people... You know, concern themselves with poverty per se, financial poverty, and we look at the poverty line and how many people live below it in the world and third world countries and how you know, well, well off we are as a country. But the most well-off country in the world, like ours and, and, and those in the West, are becoming less and less well-off when it comes to Bible riches because we simply don't know the Bible. And the way I put it is our people are Bible illiterate Bible illiterate, and that is really inexcusable if you think about it, just even from an academic perspective. Forget about the Christian perspective for a moment, but just in an academic perspective, the Bible, the book that God gave to the Jewish people to write, both Old and New Testament, 66 books are, are making up the Bible, those books are the most significant literature in the West and in the East, too but in the world but certainly in western culture it has shaped our law it shaped our culture shaped our art our music our medicine our science everything has been shaped by the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth and of God his father in heaven and so being ignorant of these things is a very well deadly mistake and it's bearing fruit in our land now as we see the strife and difficulties that people have gotten themselves into, and that uh, they, they're ignoring basic morality, basic morality of marriage, the basic morality of sexuality, the basic morality of life from the womb to the tomb, uh, everything, uh, the basic morality of just lying, of fidelity, uh, you know, all of those things, and so th- there is a real dearth of Bible knowledge, and so our call here at Fellowship Bible Church is to educate our people and as many as possible in the Word of God so that we would know it and not be ignorant of it. And the fact of the matter is, God has given it to us and He expects that we will be well informed in it. Ignorance, as they say, will be no excuse before the throne of God's judgment. And be aware, be sure to know that every man, every woman will stand before the judgment of God Someday, in one form or another, the judgment seat of Christ, or what is called the great white throne, judgment, and give an account. And uh, if uh, you do not trust in Jesus Christ, you will be found wanting in your moral condition and in your works condition, and you will have no excuse before God. This is 2,000 years old, this book here. Okay, Everybody should have read it by now, and we should know it, and we should accept uh, well what it says and deal with it. Now, we, we've been in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this is an occasional letter. That means that it was written for an occasion, a specific point in history in the mid-50s A.D. in which Paul the Apostle, who was a messenger from Jesus Christ, found that there were a number of issues in the local assembly of Christians there in this city called Corinth. And we can't go through all of that stuff all over again. We've been going through it slowly here, bit by bit, week by week, as we visited chapters 1 through 14. But we can say, I think, this, that Paul has come to a very crucial part of the letter in which he's now dealing with a problem in the church in which some people in the church are saying, there is no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. That is, they say... Like, I may put it in modern scientific terms. We say today, not we as Christians, but we as a society say, well, that can't happen because science tells us that it can't happen. Uh, people don't rise from the dead. So, therefore, we dismiss it all out of hand. It's impossible, and we just close our eyes to it and forget it. The problem with that, of course, is I hope you would recognize that science has sworn off of anything outside of the purely natural or empirical realm there is nothing in the supernatural realm that science touches by its own confession it says we cannot touch that we cannot experiment on it we cannot reproduce it we cannot so they don't know about it they don't study it they don't they aren't able to deal with it but there is a reality beyond mere materialism beyond mere statistics, empirics, rationalism that must be recognized that uh, exists outside of us. God has put eternity in our hearts, first of all. We know that there's something beyond ourselves. And, in fact, there's another very key element of information that God has placed in us, and that is the knowledge of God. Every single person has an innate knowledge of the existence and the divine power of God. And so, therefore, there is no excuse. Now, that knowledge of God becomes manifested as it's morphed and twisted by human imagination into all kinds of different forms. That's one way, by the way, we know that that knowledge does exist. Everybody has a knowledge of God, but they turn it around and they make it into whatever image they want to make it. And so instead of man being made in the image of God, God has been made into the image of man and four-footed beasts and all kinds of creatures that man has devised in his own imagination to say, well, that's what I think God is. That idol or those idols or those imaginary gods like Zeus or Jupiter or or who, whatever it is, that people imagine. They have taken the true idea of God and they have twisted it around and malformed it into their own imagination, but the reality is still there that God does exist. We know God exists. God has told us so, but he's also told us in his word that he created all things from the very beginning. He created everything some thousands of years ago. The earth and all that is in it By the way, welcome, Chuck. It's so good to see you. I didn't expect you to come today. And Carolyn, what a blessing to see you. I'm sorry to interrupt my message, but uh, that's okay. It's a worthy interruption. What a blessing to see them. They haven't been in a while, and uh, they, like some of you, fully vaccinated. And uh, Chuck had a recent medical procedure, which he's doing very well from, so that's good. But God has told us that he's created Everything in the world. In the space of six days, in fact, he created the world and everything that is in it. Every natural resource, every, uh, thing that exists, every line of DNA that came into, uh, into creation and created all the wonderful variety of plant and animal life and everything you can imagine, and all the stars, and all the planets. All of the galaxies, all of the billions of billions of galaxies and stars and all the rest of it, he created in the space of six days. He created all of that, and he created at its pinnacle Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, as it's called. And he created those two people. It really doesn't make any sense to think that people came by means of any other um, any other way, does it? Does it really make sense that life comes from non-life, you know, those uh, those flasks of Mr. Pasteur that still sit there with nothing inside of them proving that life cannot come when there is nothing to seed its start. And so it's very clear to us that there must be a power, a wisdom, an intelligence that created humankind from the beginning as well as all animal life and plant life and so on. So God created from the beginning, and he gave Adam and Eve certain basic uh, instructions, which they were to follow, and they failed to do that. And that failure is what caused the race of humanity to fall into sin. Okay, What that means is that we have fallen into a condition in which there is now disease, pandemics, and death. And those things will go on until... The Lord decides that enough is enough and he will bring all of that old order to an end and he will institute his heavenly kingdom, of which we may speak if I get there this morning, and, uh, and, uh, and, and erase all of the effects of that, of that sin, uh, sin problem. But the only way that he does that is through a person called the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So humanity fell into sin and i'm fast forwarding about 2000 well actually no i'm fast forwarding about 4 to 5000 years now in time from the beginning of the the record of your bible there in genesis up to the time when jesus of nazareth was born of a young woman who had not known a man and uh, he the son of god came into the earth came into the world as a little baby boy and grew up as a son of joseph and mary and came of age, became 30 years old, and he began to minister to the people in Israel. And let me just pause and mention this at this point, because there are a lot of people who think that Christianity is a Western religion. Christianity is a European religion. There is nothing more ignorant than to say those ideas. That is ignorance, my friends. If you think that, you need to go back and look at what you're talking about. Because Christianity is not a Western religion. Christianity is a Middle Eastern religion. Christianity arose out of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem, which is where today? In the West Bank, isn't it? Yes, it's not, it's not even within the confines of the nation of Israel today, but it, it was then. And we're talking about a Middle Eastern faith that was transplanted by the Apostle Paul as he traveled from uh, Asia Minor into Europe and Macedonia and Philippi and Athens and Greece and Corinth and all those places, he seeded Christianity in Europe from the Middle East, and then from Europe it came to the rest of the West, that is, as we know it today. So we are believers in a Middle Eastern faith, a Middle Eastern uh, originated faith called Christianity. Now, it got that name, by the way, Christianity, by some people who said, well, these people are Christ followers, you know, Christ ones. And they just kind of blew blew that off, but that's how that title came about. Now, we take it as a a badge of honor because we are those who belong to Jesus Christ. And so uh, coming back from this argument about the the Middle Eastern origin of it, we uh, remind ourselves that Jesus went about Judea and Samaria, and the rest of Israel, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And in doing so, he said, look, you need to turn away from your sin and be born from above or born again if you want to participate in this kingdom. Now, it's coming. It's coming for sure. And you can decide whether you want to participate or not, in effect. Now, I'm kind of also glossing over some other things about the work of God in somebody's heart. But you can choose you, you need to decide, am I going to be a follower of Christ or am I going to diss him? Am I going to ignore him? And he's, and he's telling us, even down to this day, believe in me or you will die in your sins. And to kind of solve the whole sin problem, you are a sinner, you know that, right? So am I. All of us are. We're not, there's no moral superiority here. We are all like one another. We're all of the same substance. We're all the same nature. Sinners born of Adam and Eve out of their sin. And we need somebody to help us, to rescue us from that dreadful condition, which has as its consequence physical death and spiritual death. And so Jesus came not only to preach that he was going to bring a kingdom, but he came to tell the people that he was going to die in their place and make payment for their sin because the payment required for sin is death the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus and so the lord Jesus Christ came and subjected himself to that cruel death that we talked about when we read in Matt, or rather in john 19 and john 20 when i pointed to this cross up here and i said that cross was the instrument of his execution that cross has become a cherished symbol among Christians worldwide now, but it is the symbol of death in the Roman Empire. And before the Roman Empire, actually, um, the uh, Assyrians used something similar to this cruel method of execution, and uh, the Medo-Persians did. It's an awful, awful thing. Um, but it's it's commonly known in, in history as an instrument of death. It's become an, a really... A symbol of life for us because it represents one who died, Jesus, in our place so that we could have life instead of death. Now, when he died that Friday afternoon, they put him into a tomb. We read about that. Two two men put him there, Joseph of Arimathea and a man named Nicodemus, took him down from the cross. An awful job, I must say. It must have been to to unaffix the body of Jesus from those nails on that cross and to put him into, uh, well, wrapping with spices and carry his body, 100 pounds of spices, plus the weight of his body, and, and put him into a tomb and seal him in there until Sunday. And so they did that. But Jesus also not only said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be killed, but also I'm going to rise again from the dead. He said that. in in advance of him doing it. And somebody might say, well, you know, that's what the guys who wrote this book say, except that if you go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in the 1940s, and you realize that those were written before Jesus ever came to the earth and include passages such as Isaiah, which says that he made his soul an offering for sin, and then that God would elevate him to the place of the greatest, indicating resurrection, you have the proof of that resurrection or the foretelling of that before it even occurred. Or David in the Psalms, a thousand years before Christ, writing that the Holy One would not see corruption, he would not suffer decay, but he would rise again from the dead. Many passages like that in the Scriptures predict his death, burial, and resurrection. And, uh, and that's what happened. He rose again from the dead, just as he said. The people that we read about in John's Gospel, the, the ladies, and also uh, Peter and John, were not some kind of star-stricken devotees from the beginning. They were, they, were, uh, they were doubtful, weren't they? What is this? They didn't understand that Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead, and then in fact, I mean, he actually meant what he said. It wasn't just some kind of spiritual resurrection. It was an actual coming back to bodily life that Jesus experienced. He laid down his life, and what does the Bible say? He took it up again. He has that authority from the Heavenly Father to do that, and God, it says, raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, and he now, Jesus, is in heaven at the right hand of God, seated there, waiting until his enemies become his footstool. Now, that's the core teaching of Christianity. Jesus died, was buried, rose again. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, you can see that. It says in verse number 3, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I delivered to you, first of all, of greatest importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, did I make that clear, by the way, in what I just said? Jesus did not just die. He died for our sins. He died because of our sins. And he died in place of us as sinners. And he died to pay for our sins. Whatever, whatever and it's a moral obligation, by the way. It's a moral indebtedness. You... If you're a human being sitting here today, and that includes everybody here, okay, unless there's a little church mouse in here listening. I'm not counting you, church mouse. All of you human beings have an obligation to God to live holy lives. An obligation. Because he is God and he has told you to be holy as he is holy. If you fail in that obligation, then you will receive the, the penalty due that error. Death. For sinners, every cemetery filled up with proof that the Bible is true and you have to deal with that reality. So he died for our sins. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. The Bible told us ahead of time it was going to happen, foretold it hundreds of years before. And then it says in verse 4, and he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Okay, So he was buried, that's easy enough. He was buried. And he rose again the third day. Well, that's where, you know, science, that almighty God that people follow today, science. Science stumbles at that. Science says nobody can rise from the dead, but the Bible says people can rise from the dead. And there are dozens and hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive from the dead. You want to see that? Go to verse 5. He was first seen by Peter or Cephas, as the Bible nicknames him. After that, the 12, after that, he was seen by over 500 people at one time, of whom the greater part remain. To the, he's talking to the present writing, which was some decades, a couple decades later. Uh, but some have fallen asleep, he said. Some have died. Some of those eyewitnesses, we can't talk to them now because they're gone. Then he was seen by James, probably the half-brother of the Lord, then all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me, who is me. Well, me is the author of this letter, and that is the apostle Paul. And he says, you know, I was one, as one born out of due time. I, I was the odd man out. I wasn't, I wasn't a disciple initially. I rejected Jesus. I persecuted the church. I mean, here's another guy who wasn't a star-struck cult follower of Jesus. He hated Jesus. He hated the church that Jesus formed and he tried to kill the people who believed in Jesus. And then he had an encounter with Jesus who shone a light down from heaven and said, Hey, Buster, what are you doing? You're going to find it hard to kick against the goads that I'm going to put into you. And so Paul said, Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? And he realized this Jesus who he was persecuting Was the Lord and Christ the one who is going to come and create a kingdom on this earth that he had to be rightly related to? And so Paul became one of his followers, not, you know, kind of not willingly in a sense, but then willingly when he realized that was the only logical thing to do. And that's kind of what we're saying, almost I'm saying that today, you know, when you realize there's only one logical course of action that you can take. God created you, you have sinned and displeased God, He's given you a a a notice of the punishment that's going to come. If you believe in Jesus, however, he promises you eternal life. There's really only one logical thing to do. There's only one right thing that you can choose to do. And so 1 Corinthians 15 tells us of of the resurrection of Jesus. And it, by the way, gives us all these witnesses, uh, good enough for any court of law. I've said this before, isn't it? Take them all up before the judge, you know, Swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. Yes. Did you see Jesus alive? Yes. What day was it? Okay, and they can explain. 500 times. Are you going to believe that Jesus is alive, or are you going to take all those witnesses and just chuck them and say, nah, I know better because science tells me. Science tells me. You know, people have made science out to be a God. They just don't bow down to it in a physical way today, but it's a sad spectacle when people believe science more than they believe God. First Corinthians 15 then goes on to talk about the idea that since Christ is preached, is preached about him that he is alive, how can some say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And the Apostle Paul goes through and kind of gives the logical outcome of what this means. If he wasn't risen from the dead, then the Christian faith is nothing. I'll just summarize it there because we're low on time. Okay, He's saying, look, if there's no resurrection of the dead, the whole thing is a farce. Christianity is, is empty. It's useless. It's a lie. It's foolishness. It's, it's, it's pathetic. Okay, Don't bother with it. And he goes on in a later part of chapter 15, verses 29 to 34, to say some more about it. Why all these Christian rituals that you people do? Why do you come to church? Why do you do baptism? Why do you read the Bible? Why do you pray? If, if there's no resurrection of the dead, forget it. Just live it up. Just, you know, live for today. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That, that, that old philosophy. And Paul says, look, don't be deceived. That kind of thinking corrupts a good church. That kind of thinking corrupts somebody who believes what is right. And he says, look, wake up to righteousness and do not sin. Stop your denials of the resurrection of Jesus because that is a sin. That is false. That is a lie, and you need to stop it. Now, he goes on and he talks in verses 20 to 28 about how Jesus has been raised from the dead and has become the first of those who will rise. And by so saying, what Paul is saying is, look, Jesus is only the first one. Every human being will be raised to life again after their death. Okay, that's in verse 20 and particularly in verse 22 if you're following along in your Bible. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. There's an orderly arrangement here. Christ is first. Second are those that believe in Jesus. And third are those that don't believe in Jesus. Okay, okay. When you believe in Jesus, you'll be raised to new life and you'll enjoy what he says in verses 25 and 28 to 28, the kingdom of God. But if you don't believe in Jesus, if you reject him, then you will be raised just as sure as Christians will be, but you'll be raised to judgment. And you will see God as your judge in that resurrected body and then you will live that way for the rest of your eternity apart from God in and in, in, in judgment and in punishment because you decided, I'll deal with my sin myself. God says, okay, you will forever deal with your sin yourself because you didn't freely, you know, you didn't choose Jesus to allow him to deal with it for you. And so that's the kind of summary of, of the chapter up to that point. Now he says that there's going to be coming this kingdom, which we uh, alluded to earlier. Jesus promised to be, to be bringing in a kingdom. And that kingdom is going to be a very special time in world history. It's coming still. It's not here yet, but it's coming. And uh, there will be a number of interesting things that happen during that time. One is that Christians will be given a new body, a new body, and that body will be outfitted for an eternal heavenly existence. And that body is described in verses 35 through 49. Now, we talked about this last time, last Sunday, so... I won't go back there, but all that's recorded—it's on our website, it's on the live stream or the YouTube recorded uh, live streams—that you can look back at and see those messages. But what he basically says there in 35 to 49 is this: Look, somebody's going to say undoubtedly they'll object and say, "Okay, if so, if I'm going to rise up from the dead, what am I going to be like? What's my body going to be like? You know, tell me that." They're kind of being critical of what the of of what the Bible teaches. And so Paul says, okay, I'll tell you, your body now, the body that's sitting in these pews or sitting there listening to the live stream right now, your body is like a seed. And that seed is going to be planted in the ground. And what comes out of the ground is gonna be a glorious new different thing for Christians that is organically attached to the seed. It's gonna be similar to the seed. It's gonna have, if you will, kind of the same DNA as the seed but it will have some different characteristics about it. And those characteristics will be like those of the Lord Jesus when he rose out of the grave. Do you remember what he was like when he came out of the grave? The ladies saw him at first, and they didn't quite recognize who he was. They thought he was somebody else. I kind of, you, know, you kind of picture him as having a certain special kind of glow around him, you know, the, the old paintings. I, I never do picture him, though, with a halo over his head. That just doesn't. Doesn't do it for me, okay? But he had a certain kind of glow about him, a certain radiant resplendence, certain glory and brightness. And and they couldn't quite recognize him. But then after a second, their eyes got adjusted like, oh, that, that's who that is. And he had flesh and bones. They could hold on to him. He could eat. But he could also do other things. There's kind of uh, indication that he could uh, just kind of, you know, quantumly pass through walls or something. I don't know how that works, but... Um, you know, there's some kind of different mode of existence. It's still physical, but it was different than what it, what it was before. But our bodies will be made like that somehow, outfitted for eternal uh, heavenly existence. And that's basically the message there. And then finally, in verses 50 to 58, the Apostle Paul says about this transformation of the body that it is absolutely necessary. We cannot inherit the kingdom of God in our sin-cursed bodies as we stand here or sit here today, okay? Now, I have a whole lot here in the notes we won't be able to get to, but I'll try to kind of summarize a little bit. What we're looking for next is Jesus is going to return, okay? And, And you shouldn't think that's incredible, by the way, because he already came once. The next time he comes, he's going to come like he left. He went up as an adult man into heaven, and he's going to come back down in the same way, and he's going to establish a kingdom on the earth. Okay? On that in that kingdom, there are going to be several different people groups. One is people in their natural bodies like like our bodies, you know, today, but who will have survived this period of time and up to the, you know, through the great tribulation right before the kingdom and go on and live in that kingdom. There'll be those people. Then there'll be Christians who are resurrected and, and uh, have died already, but resurrected. And those who, like us, may be alive, if Jesus were to you know, unfold this program today, would uh, rapture us up and in an instant translate our bodies into a, a heavenly body. And that's what this passage says. In fact, look at it. Um, it says in verse 52 or 51, "...behold, I tell you a mystery..." We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, that's the seed body here, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when that has happened, he says in verse 54, then will be brought to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. What's the greatest fear of humanity today? It's not COVID. It's only COVID because COVID leads to death. If COVID was just a sniffle, nobody would care. But because so many people have died with it or from it or however, they, we get all you know uptight because we think, oh, I could get it and I, that'd be my demise. Death holds people in bondage. But for Christians, death doesn't hold that over our heads anymore. We, that's why we are different than those who are not followers of Jesus. We are not fearful of dying, but we also are appreciative of the gift of life, and so we are prudent about it and take efforts to reduce human suffering and to increase human flourishing and those sorts of things. But we have not the ultimate fear of death that people have who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. But death will be swallowed up in victory. There will be a time when there is no more death in the world, in the, in the heavenly realm, ever again, ever, ever, ever. Can you imagine? No more funerals. No more funerals. What a blessing that will be. Well, we will exist in this, in this eternal heavenly state, ultimately, in bodies that are material, physical bodies, but they will not be subject to decay, not be subject to death, uh, not be subject to even sorrow because there won't be anything to be sorrowful about. But uh, to get there will be transformed into this new form of body. This transformation is quite radical. Uh, it's instantaneous for those who are either dead or still alive when Jesus returns. And this is another area where people say, well, look, that just can't be. I mean, that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, resurrection don't, doesn't happen either, but it did happen, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and it will happen, and it will be, uh, you know, tru- truth will be stranger than fiction. You know, it, science, science, again, won't, won't agree, but it doesn't matter. Science doesn't have to agree. It's going to happen anyway. But ultimately, there'll be this victory over death. Death is going to be defeated. All the degradation that you experience in your body is going to be put aside. It's going to be fixed. And you won't have to deal with that anymore. Now, let me close this way, especially on a note encouraging for Christians today. That is in verse 57 and 58. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers... and and you could really insert here, because of what we have looked at, because of all that we have said from the beginning of chapter 15 until now, because there is a resurrection of the dead, because Christ has been raised from the dead, because we too will rise from the dead, most certainly we can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, we don't uh, we don't guess, or hope, or wish that we will be raised from the dead, or that Jesus was so raised. We know that that's the case, and because we know that that's the case, we can carry on living as Christians with the great confidence that our Christian walk is not useless; it is useful. It is something that is very good and important and crucial that we carry on living like this. So you say, Pastor, what's the use? Society hates us. You know, we've been canceled. Everybody I talk to rebuffs what I'm saying. They just blow it off. They say it's ridiculous. There are some people, my friends, that God has his hand upon who don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, but they shall. Because perhaps you are steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord because you don't give up your confidence in Christ and because you keep telling others of Jesus. You might tell a hundred people and only one comes to faith. But you know what? It makes a whole lot of difference for that one person. Time's eternity means that it's all worth your effort. Even if 99 reject what you say, keep on keeping on. You say, Pastor, my life is a struggle. I have, I have a deadly illness right now. I feel like giving up. Don't give up, because you know that you will be resurrected again. Even if your cancer takes your life, you will be raised to new life. You say, I'm discouraged. I'm down. I'm My life doesn't seem to be going where it should be going. Don't be discouraged. Don't give in because the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened and yours will too. As as sure as you're sitting here breathing and alive today, don't go dying on me now, okay? As sure as you're sitting here breathing and alive today, you will be resurrected from the dead and you will be with Jesus if you are a follower of Christ. Okay? Just as sure, though, if you're not a follower of Christ, you will also be resurrected to eternal condemnation. And we don't want you to do that. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in the next letter that he wrote to the same people, we beg you to be reconciled to God. Because if you don't, it will be eternal terror and awful judgment for you. So we urge you be reconciled to God believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved period if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you confess him with your mouth as Lord you will be saved that's it's simple but it's life altering in ways you can't even imagine and and really you know i don't know why people would want to continue living in bondage to sin and death what fun is that What fun is that? You live for the Lord Jesus Christ. You live in that newfound freedom that you have in Christ, free from sin, free from the bondage, I mean, slavery to sin and have new life. And you will see what Jesus meant when he said, I came that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Oh, my people, listen to the words of God. It's not just my words. These are the words of Jesus Christ, the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting to come to establish his kingdom. He's coming. You listen to what he says. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that you have given us these words and this certainty and this assurance that Jesus is raised from the dead and that we as followers of him will be too. We exalt him who came, and suffered, and died, and was buried, and rose again, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy of our full life's worship and attention, of our full life's mission and work, of everything, because he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We bow before him, in his name, amen.